The medical information communicated in this podcast is of a general educational nature. If you are feeling unwell, please seek the attention of a medical practitioner. Any advertisements promoted throughout the podcast are not endorsed by the presenter or any of the guests interviewed. Hi there, welcome to MediTalk, a medical podcast talking all things medical in a way that you can understand. You're with Danae. According to Pain Australia, in 2018, 3.24 million Australians were living with chronic pain. This amount of people suffering pain had an estimated financial cost to the Australian economy of $73.2 billion. For many people, their chronic pain restricts their ability to work and significantly impacts their quality of life and relationships with others. Understanding and treating pain is extremely complex, and for this reason, I felt it was best to speak with a highly respected and experienced pain specialist at St John of God Hospital Subiaco, Dr Paul Graziotti, to learn more about chronic pain. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr Graziotti, for today's MediTalk talk on pain. My pleasure. So what causes pain? Well, believe it or not, there are some people who don't have pain. So their Mm -hmm. nervous system is abnormal. They're missing certain receptors uh, and they don't experience any pain at all. And in general, those people live very difficult lives because they get injuries. Uh, Their body doesn't know that they've had an injury. The injury Mm -hmm. then goes on and becomes infected. Uh, And so they have to protect themselves uh, excessively in order to live a a normal-ish sort of life. So pain is a protective mechanism. That's what we've got it for. That's Mm -hmm. why it developed. The problem is that sometimes, particularly if a person has um, had a painful condition for a long period of time, the pain system can become wound up. The underlying problem that initially caused the pain settles down and that pain, that pain that persists despite the fact that the underlying problem has settled down, that's the pain that becomes a problem. Okay. So then what's the difference between chronic pain and acute pain? So that so acute pain is pain in general that you understand. Mm-hmm. So, so if you break a bone, example? you, okay. you yep. get acute pain. Yep. If you have an operation in the immediate post-operative period, you've got a cut, that's painful, mm. that's acute pain. Uh, if you get appendicitis, that's acute pain. If you have uh, hernia repair, immediately afterwards, that's acute pain. Mm-hmm. If, however, three months after your hernia repair, you've still got pain, if you have a hip replacement and three months after your hip replacement, you're still getting a lot of pain, If you have back surgery Mm. and the surgery uh, fixes the initial problem, which might have been sciatica, for instance, but then you have ongoing pain which persists, that's chronic pain. Generally, we consider chronic pain something that the underlying cause for it is not clear. Mm. So there's no simple fix for chronic pain. It used to be that acute pain was less than three months and chronic pain was longer than three so months. It was but you can see how by time. it was defined by time. But you can see how they sort of meld together. And someone, for instance, who has a hip, an arthritic hip, can have pain for twelve months, but then have a hip operation and fix it, and the pain's mm-hmm. gone. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't consider that initial pain chronic pain in the usual sense of the word. Mm. Certainly, doesn't need the normal treatment that chronic pain needs. It needs a hip replacement. Mm. But if that person after their hip replacement has ongoing pain, uh, which is not explicable, then 
we would consider that chronic pain and that requires a different approach to the management of it rather than the acute pain. So then when should someone seek help for their chronic pain? Well, the other thing, of course, is that as we get older, we all get pain. That's so true. once you're over 60, you wake up in the morning and you think, I wonder what's going to hurt Life's today. Life's painful. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> what <laughs> pain have I got today? That's right. <laughs> that's true. And in general, that pain will last a few days and then settle down. Yeah. So pain comes and goes. That's life. Um, we expect that. But if you have... And uh, I suppose that's the difference between aches and pains because you have those, like a general right. like person who will say, oh, I've got an aching knee. Or, but right. they won't often use the term painful. That's right. And if people work in the garden really hard one day, the next day they expect to have pain. Yeah, a bit of muscle pain, a bit of muscle ache. That's all normal. So there's like good pain like that that just means that you've been using your muscles and your body Mm. and we all expect to have that. Yes. Um, There are certain things though that would indicate that a pain might be uh, an indication of something more sinister going on. Mm. And so what, there's what we call red flags, okay? So okay. the red flags are if you have a pain and fever, then that you should seek assistance. If you have severe pain radiating down a limb, like down the arm or a leg, then that generally indicates that you should seek medical And is that attention. like a neuropathic pain? Like a neuropathic pain, like a sciatica mm-hmm. or a, what we call a radicular pain, mm-hmm. which is, indicates that there's something affecting an, a nerve. Mm-hmm. It might or might not be something that requires specific treatment, but it's something that requires in, uh, investigation. Mm-hmm. If you've got weight loss associated with pain, then that generally indicates you should see somebody. If um, you have been previously completely well and you suddenly, over the age of 50, start developing a pain which bothers you at night in particular, then that requires some sort of investigation as well. Mm -hmm. Other than that, if a pain comes, in general it's best to wait and see what happens. If after a week or two weeks the pain hasn't settled down or if you feel that it's progressively getting worse, then you should seek some sort of assessment of the pain. And then what sort of assessment do you have for pain? Well, you would go to the doctor and the Mm. doctor would take a history. Mm -hmm. So doctors ask, take the history because there's lots of different pains, Mm. okay? So you've already indicated neuropathic pain. So what is neuropathic pain? Neuropathic pain is pain that you get when a nerve is injured. Now, the nerve may be injured by a disprotrusion or something pushing on the nerve, Mm. but a nerve can be injured by there being an intrinsic problem with the nerve, like a telephone cable that's gone wrong, Mm. okay? You can't see anything. The cable looks fine. Mm. It's just there's something wrong with the mechanism of it. So trigeminal neuralgia, for instance, or other neuralgias can be like that. Diabetics often get pain when everything looks normal, but it's the diabetes affecting the nerves. Mm -hmm. So doctors want to find out, is this a nerve pain or is this what we call a mechanical pain? In other words, is it worse when you do things, when you don't do things, Mm -hmm. when you rest? Um, uh, And then the doctor should examine you uh, and look for any type of neurological loss. Have you got numbness or weakness or lost reflexes, mm-hmm. that sort of thing? And then they will generally decide on what type of investigations are best to do. Yeah. Uh, and and what common there. ones would they be, sort of radiology type yeah, of Yeah, it depends on which part of the body yeah. is involved and um, which... Um, you know, what what system the person's looking at. Sure. I mean, most of my work is in spinal pain. Mm. Uh, the MRI has revolutionised the assessment of spinal pain. Yes. It's a very sensitive test. So it 
shows up everything. Yes. Therein lies a problem because a lot of patients and a lot of and some some doctors don't know how to interpret the findings on an MRI. For instance, I see lots of patients who come along telling me that their problem is their disc bulge and they're all 50 or above. Well, disc bulges are normal. Mm. If once you're over 50, you bulge everywhere else, you also bulge in your disc. Mm. So disc bulges don't necessarily cause pain. Sometimes they do if they're causing some sort of narrowing or something along those lines. But most of the patients who I see who come along with a diagnosis of a disc bulge, once I put their MR up, MRI up mm. on the computer, show them exactly what the disc bulge is, show them how far away it is from the spine, from the nerves, mm. from, the, from the spinal cord, uh, and, and explain to them that it's normal, most of them are actually reassured mm. because quite often the biggest problem with chronic pain is not the pain mm. and it's not the underlying pathology. It's the fear of the pain. Mm. It's the fear of what it means. Yeah. If so I've, what's the unknown? What's this? Yeah, exactly. What could be causing it that I'm not aware of? So many patients, for instance, that I see, uh, I explain their pain, in, in their back pain, in terms of a sprained ankle. If you sprain your ankle, mm. it's sore. You can't walk on it. It, it. Eventually, though, you do start walking on it, but it's still sore when you start walking on it. And then over time, it gradually improves. But one day, you might turn to taunt somebody, mm. talk to somebody or twist, and bang, it's sore again, and then it settles down again over a week. Now, people can cope with that because they can see their ankle. They know there's nothing wrong with their ankle. But in their back, it's completely different. They can't see it. They don't know. They think, if I do things and it's painful, I must be damaging something. And I've been told I've got a disc bulge. I've been told my back's stuffed. I've got the back of an 80-year-old and I'm only 50. So therefore, I have to protect myself. Anything I do will be dam- that's painful will be damaging my back, and that is the most crippling thing that can happen to a person. And I think sometimes it's a bit of the dilemma when we now can read the MRI, exactly. for instance, and it says disc bulge, and we exactly. go and Google it, and we exactly. go, exactly. <laughs> what does this bulge mean? That's exactly right. And I think right. it's the importance of having talking through the actual report with a doctor, exactly going right. back and getting the result and in getting the proper interpretation exactly. because it can put your mind at ease. Well, as I say to my patients, the radiologist, when they're reporting on the MRI, they're all good people, okay? There's mm. nothing, I'm not criticising radiologists at all. They've only got the MRI. Yes. And their job is to report everything on the MRI, not the things that might be relevant to your symptoms, but everything and on the MRI. And they don't know the full history. That's right. So mm-hmm. most of the patients, most of the abnormalities that they describe will be asymptomatic. They're not causing any symptoms. They're not causing any, like having rust in a car. You can have rust in lots of parts of a car that actually aren't causing any problems. And it can still drive. And you can still work <laughs> it and it still drives and everything's fine and all that rust is actually totally irrelevant in terms mm-hmm. of the functioning of that car. And that's what... MRIs are like in the spine. So you'll see a lot of things. There'll be a whole page of Mm. of abnormalities that are on there. 90% of them will be totally irrelevant to your symptoms. And it's your doctor, your specialist, and your role, you to give accurate information so the doctor can then say, okay, well, that is consistent with this particular problem in your spine. That is something that we might look at treating or that's something that doesn't need treating and that's just something that just needs exercise and over time it will settle down. Most people, once they know that exercise is not going to hurt them, that if they get pain, they're not damaging anything, um, most people actually then quite pleased to get back they're on relieved. with things. Yeah, yeah. because they, the less you do, the worse, the worse your back gets, the worse yeah. the pain gets. So 
I suppose going through a patient journey, they they feel like this this pain. <clears throat> they've gone to see a specialist, someone like yourself. Then, what are some of the medications, some of the treatments that can be offered if the chronic pain has been diagnosed that are quite useful? Okay, so well, there's different modalities of treatment that we've got. Okay, so we can start with exercise, which I've already spoken about. Yes. There are things that the patient can do, and then there are things that they require so assistance. Exercise to do. can actually help pain. So exercise is excellent for pain. That's great to know. There's a lot of studies showing that exercise is good. There's not a lot of studies showing that one particular type of exercise is better than any other type of exercise. So the main thing is to move, to do some regular walking if you can, swimming in the pool if you can, Pilates if you like it and you can. Um, and so, uh, and so. That whole modality of physiotherapy, exercise, physiologists, uh, massage, those sorts of things can all be really useful for symptomatic relief, but also for improving your mobility and movement. Mm. Okay? Um, and we often send people off for an exercise program or we try to encourage people to get into an exercise program. Then sticking with the sort of non-medical type mm. treatments, it's often quite, you're sometimes quite useful for a patient to have some sort of psychological input into mm. their pain management because at the end of the day, when a patient presents with pain, what you're seeing is not pain. You're not, you can't look at someone and say, okay, well, they've got this much pain. All you can see is their pain behaviour mm. and their pain behaviour will be affected by the pain. Mm. I don't think anyone acts in pain who doesn't have pain, um, but it will also be affected by other things, their fear of what that pain means. Mm. Uh, oh, my God, I'm going to lose my job. Mm. I've hurt my back. Yeah. Uh, or um, so this must be cancer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I'm not going to be able to play football anymore or, or run with my kids or do any of these sorts of things. And those sorts of things will affect their pain behaviour. Mm. And some people are very anxious uh, and easily made more anxious. And so when something like that happens, they become crippled with their mm. pain from a problem that really shouldn't cripple them. Mm. The problem there is that if you treat them as though their pain is really severe, you will miss the ball, miss the target, okay? Mm. You won't, you'll be treating something that's not the underlying cause of their problem. So in those particular types of patients, something like psychology might be quite useful because they can learn more adaptive ways to deal with their pain. They can learn what the significance of the pain is, distraction techniques, learn to reduce their anxiety with various techniques. And can it actually change, I was reading, the neuroplastic, like the message that it's sending? Exactly. Yeah, so how does that work? That was quite... Interesting, but I didn't really understand. I thought oh, I'd love to ask you well, about that. Well, the brain is a very plastic mm. organ in that the brain can modify how it responds to a certain stimulus depending on um, how you use things, for mm. instance. So, um, for instance, people who um, get a painful condition and then focus intensely on yes. that painful problem uh, and... Um, don't use the affected limb, the part of the brain that, the, the central part of the brain that um, represents that pain and organ becomes magnified. Yes. Uh, how do you demagnify that? You demagnify it by, by not doing those things, undoing those things. So, for instance, there's certain pain conditions 
where people get, for instance, a minor injury to a hand and they get severe pain in the hand for which they then eventually can't use. Mm. The solution to that is to actually get them using the arm. So you have to actually force these people to start using the arm with the support of psychologists, of exercise, physiologists. And is that like a CBT form like of therapy? Like a CBT type got- form of therapy, yeah. But the main thing is they have to start using the limb again. They have to teach their body what is normal to again. To rewire. Exactly. Yeah, right. And the body can rewire. It can rewire. We see some people who have a nerve injury, for instance. They end up with a patch of numbness or even a patch of weakness. And then just by exercising and using that limb, mm. the muscles start to grow again. The muscles start to get strong again. And does it The nerve hasn't regrown. Uh, Other nerves have taken over. And is it sending messages saying, this is okay, I'm feeling okay, exactly. rather than I'm feeling pain, I'm exactly, feeling pain. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, they're sending messages back to their brain saying, this is okay, okay. Yeah, I'm having pain, but I've got a, this, this is good pain, this is yes. good pain. And so you can reprogram. That's your, amazing. It is a fascinating And have you seen in patient. your own clinic that? Be reinforced in oh, patients have had. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, amazing. Yeah. I mean, you see, uh, I see patients. For instance, I see patients come in here after a minor ankle sprain, mm. and um, nine months down the track, they are still on crutches. And wow, it's pretty simple. I just tell them throw away the crutches and start walking. Obviously, with support from various people, yeah. but that is the crux of the treatment. If you can't start walking on your ankle, it will never get better. Yeah, you've got pain to make it stronger. Pain or no pain, yeah. And what people and, then start walking? And they start. They start in the pool. They yeah. start, you know, gently. They do more and more each day. The, the crux is getting their confidence. Mm. If they become confident that, okay, this is something I have to do, mm. they can do it. Mm. If they don't believe it, if they think, oh, but I can't do it, it's too painful, then you're not going to make any progress. You'll never make any progress mm. if, if that's the way. So it, all, it can start with. It all starts there with in the, the head. Brain. And yep. it all ends in the head. Yeah, I mean, right. you know, if you take the head off, you don't have any pain. Yeah. <laughs> so all people can't say. Can't do is, that, unfortunately. People <laughs> say, is, there, is, 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 do you think it's all in my mind, Doc? You yes. say, well, it is all in your mind. It always is in your mind. Yeah. As I can't, as I was saying, our brain right, is so powerful. That's right. And as I was saying before, the way people respond to pain depends on how they interpret the pain and how they react to the pain. You can choose how you react to a pain. Mm. You only have to go to a labour ward to see how the same, presumably roughly the same, painful stimulus affects people differently. So you have people mm. from one culture. They scream their heads off. That's what they do when they have pain. Mm. And then you have people from another culture who sit there absolutely silently mm. and don't say anything. Uh, it's all different ways of reacting of to the pain. Of managing pain. pain. Yeah. And yeah. what about opiates and, and, and cannabis? What's, what's your thoughts on their use in well, treating pain? Look, opiates are very useful for people with acute pain in mm. certain settings. The post-operative period, for instance, we all use opiates. Uh, there's no problem with them there. The question with chronic pain is different. Because often in chronic pain, it's unrealistic to expect that we will get rid of that pain forever. Because yeah. often the pain is related to arthritis. Most back pain, for instance, most neck pain, most joint pains, it's arthritis. What is arthritis? Arthritis is rust. Is that just natural wear and tear natural of our body as we get older? Of joints as you Another great joy of getting older. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Not for the weak hearted. As as I and I tell my patients, it's exactly like rust. Mm. Because if you get something rusty and you put it in the shed for a week, it seizes up. It's mm. exactly the same with your arthritic joints. If you don't use them, they seize up. If you keep using them, then they won't seize up. 
but they will hurt. Mm. So you say, oh, well, that's no problem. I'll just take opiates. The opiates, the body has a great capacity to get used to anything. Mm. Okay. So it's like it forms a codependent relationship. Exactly. Well, first of all, you take the opiates, things feel better. Yes. Because uh, uh, for a month or so, feels like you don't have the pain, you can do more, of course you do more, plus your body gets used to the opiates, those opiates don't work anymore. So you say, oh, I just need a little bit more. Mm. So you take a little bit more and so on. And, and uh, it, I see people who are on huge doses of opiates. Mm. For long periods of time. For long periods yeah. of time. And when I say to them, well, what does it do when you take this stuff? Mm. They say, oh, it takes the edge off it in a slurred, blurry sort of voice. Mm. And so we discuss coming off the opiates, and they say, oh, no, I can't come off it because if I stop it, I really know about it. Mm. Because, of course, then they're experiencing withdrawal effects from the opiates mm. because once your body becomes tolerant to the opiate, it then becomes dependent on it. Dependency in itself is not a big problem mm. because diabetics are dependent on insulin, mm. okay? So people with blood pressure are dependent on their antihypertensives. To manage their yeah, blood pressure. Yeah. exactly. So people with pain are dependent on opiates. Now, if the opiate is helping their pain and they can function better and they can do more, then that's reasonable. And some there are a group of patients on relatively low doses usually of opiates in whom that is the case. They, mm. they take the opiate, they can function, and they've and got definite pathology. And that would be a decision between... The pain specialist and the patient. And the patient or the doctor, or their the doctor. doctor. Yeah. yeah. So there are sort of criteria for prescribing opiates um, which are really quite clear. Mm. If a person's got pathology that's commensurate with their pain behaviour, in other words, the pathology is the main problem, not some other thing, not fear or uh, other problems, um, and the opiate actually helps. So you can do a trial with an opiate of a relatively small dose, and if it improves, then you can mm. continue on with it. Uh, and if the person's level of function continues to be maintained, improved, then you can stay on the opiates. But usually what happens after a period of time, though, is that the person becomes used to the opiate, the body becomes used to it, they they then try and stop it because they think this stuff's not doing me any good, I'm not taking it anymore. Yeah. Then they get withdrawals effect and they think, oh, no, I can't stop it, I have to keep taking it. So sometimes what we do is we put people into hospital, we stop these people on big doses of opiates, we stop their opiates and they go through a withdrawal period for a period of a week, but they're in hospital, so they're sort of managed. And then it's interesting that what happens at the end of that week. What happens? I'll tell you, They first of all, their pain is no worse. They realise that actually it wasn't doing anything. And secondly, they will say, you know, my brain has become clear. Yeah. Before you go through that process, I say to them, you know, that's probably affecting your brain. You can't think. And they say, no, no, I can think straight. No, it doesn't affect me at all that way. Mm. Because the effect that it has is a bit like a dirty windscreen effect. So you get your dirty windscreen and you think, oh, it's not too bad. It's, Mm. it's, I can see through it. And then someone cleans it and you think, whoa, how clean is that? Because it got dirty slowly, slowly, slowly. It's the same with this stuff. So your your brain slowly, slowly, slowly gets fogged up. Mm. You think, no, I'm okay. I'm okay. But then once you stop it, the brain becomes clear. The very, I have a very, very small number of patients who go anywhere near opiates once they've been through that process. Really? Because they think life's better. Life's better. Their pain's no worse. Mm. They are now strong enough to be able to use other methods to cope with their pain. They have their coping mechanisms become restored because opiates knock your volition. Mm. They knock your capacity to be able to put up with pain, to be able to get out and exercise, Mm. to be able to do things. Um, 
your confidence as well, as you say, mm. yeah. So, wow. so there's a lot of negatives about opiates yes. and chronic pain. Yes. Not and to you say that there's not a it. small group, yeah, who 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 do okay. Yeah. I mean, for instance, you get some people with severely arthritic hips that can't be operated on, mm. and so a small dose of opiates, a patch or something, might get them enough relief that they can walk around, they can do things. But in the majority of patients with chronic pain, with pain that's going on for a long time. Opiates tend not to be useful, and I spend more time taking people off opiates mm. than I do putting people on opiates. Okay. Cannabis. And you're hearing you know, a cannabis lot about is the it next the opiate crisis coming. Really? <laughs> That's the way I see it. But it's it's probably got a role for a, again a very specific small number of patients. Firstly. Similarly to the opiates, there's not a lot of evidence that cannabis is actually any good for pain. Mm. There's a few studies, but in the big studies that have been done, the effect is pretty weak. The cannabis that you buy, medical cannabis so-called, is consists of two different components. There's mm-hmm. a cannabinoid mm-hmm. and there's THC, so CBD and THC. CBD is actually not a very good painkiller, but it doesn't have many side effects. THC probably is a reasonable painkiller for certain types of pain, mainly nerve pain, neuropathic pain. And some you hear they're using it a little bit on oncology patients. Who and, are on, I know. And well, oncology is a different yeah, scenario, is, yeah, yeah, because you're probably working as an anxiolytic there as well True, because they're anxious. but not in chronic pain patients. In chronic pain patients, no. So the problem with THC as a painkiller, though, is that the level that you need to get pain relief mm. is very close to the level at which it causes Oh. You to go off your tree. Other side effects. Yeah. So so people might take something, oh, yes, I'm getting a little bit of pain relief, take another dose and they're away with the So fairies. they might create that that um, smudgy window. Exactly, oh. yeah. So, so that non- non-clarity of your mind and exactly, being able to function. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So in an ideal world, people, and I think this is happening at the clinics that sort of specialise in using CBD, people have a trial. Yes. Uh, if the trial's not successful, with very clear guidelines. This is what we want to achieve. And in Australia, there's clear guidelines for prescribing it. There are guidelines for prescribing it. Yes. There are indications for which it might be useful. But, you know, like all drugs, people push the boundaries a little bit because there's a lot of desperate people. Yeah. Uh, and people want to try it. I don't have a problem with people yeah. trying it as long as they have a very clear idea in their head as to what they want to achieve. And if they don't achieve that, then they don't keep taking it. Yeah. Um, just like we recommended when we wrote guidelines for using opiates. This is what you have to achieve. It's not very not good enough to sit there in a half-doped-out state saying, oh, yeah, I think it's a bit better. You've got to actually be functioning more. Are you able to go to work when you take these but you couldn't go to work before? Are you able to do exercise on these that you couldn't do before? Can you do the shopping on these that you couldn't do before? Mm-hmm. Are you getting out and socialising on these that you weren't doing before? Yeah. And if the answer to those questions is no, then... Doesn't matter how, whether the patient says their pain scores two or ten or five, if they're not improving their level of function, it's not working. It's not working. Yeah. And what about physiotherapy? Oh, we've talked about psychologists, we've talked about exercise, but um, a lot of people who might go for back surgery and things like that, they often prescribe physiotherapy. Yeah. And some patients will say, oh, you know, I don't really want to give it a go. You know, have you seen it being really beneficial for patients with chronic pain? I, I find that the best physiotherapists are people who are able to motivate 
their pa- in chronic pain scenario, mm. motivate their patients to do appropriate exercises, educate their patients as to why they should do those exercises, um, and um, and teach the patients how to do the exercises properly and themselves rather than becoming dependent on the physiotherapy exactly, sessions. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So in my from my perspective. The idea of a physiotherapist is to say, this is what you need to do, this is how you need to do it, this is why you need to do it, go away and do it. Mm. I think the idea that people come back to the physiotherapist every week for the next 10 years, I, I don't think and that's think useful that for anybody. I think that puts people off too. I know yeah. even with myself, when I've been prescribed to go and see physio, you think, you know, oh, to go every week, yes, you know. Yeah, um, and I think yeah. the idea, as you say, to create for education yeah. and be independent, be able to do stretches exactly. on your own, exactly. in your own time exactly. is a good way forward. I mean, at the end of the day, we talk about pain management. We don't talk about pain curing. We talk about how to manage it. And really, that management should be self-management. Mm. How do I manage my pain? That's what I want to do. Yeah. I don't want to be going to 5 million different people every week. And it becomes expensive. It becomes Very unsustainable. Exactly. You know, so it's like trying to find things that you can do that are financially sustainable but also yep. sustainable over time. Exactly. Rather exactly. than people go, oh, you have to do – I think sometimes exactly. you can get bombarded by you should be doing this, doing that. Exactly. It's like really exactly. try and simplify exactly. it. Exactly. And often you get conflicting uh, advice from different people. Yeah. Um, so I think, as I say, I think if everyone's on the same page – if it's a chronic pain situation, most likely they'll all be saying, you've got to get moving, this is how you can do it, these are the things that might help, and then away you go and do them. And if you don't want to do them, then that's fine, but don't waste your money going to the physio every week um, because it's not going to help. My main mode of therapy is injections. Mm -hmm. That's what I do for people with, uh, with pain that I see. And the rationale for that is twofold. Uh, The first thing is for many patients particularly with back pain. So there's this sort of milieu of information out there that says, forget about the cause of back pain. We never know what's causing it. Just go away and live with it. But I actually think that we can do better than that. With a good history and a good examination and relevant investigations, injections can then be used to identify what might or might not be causing pain. Once you can look a patient in the eye and you can say, okay, well, we've injected these particular structures here and it didn't help your pain, they are not causing your pain. Regardless of the MRI showing that there's wear mm. and tear there or whatever else, those things are not causing your and pain. What's, what is the injection? What's the in injections it? are usually a local anaesthetic mm-hmm. with or without cortisone and then they may have other drugs in them. So it depends on what you're trying to do with the injection. Yes. So the first thing, as I'm saying, is we're trying to diagnose the problem, mm-hmm. okay? So what we want to know is while the area was numb, did the pain go away? Mm. If you have lots of patients, for instance, have a disc protrusion, that may or may not be pain. Well, their pain's not really typical for that disc protrusion. Mm. Or they've got an arthritic hip and a disc protrusion, and you think, well, which one of those is causing the pain? So mm. if you put local anaesthetic in the hip, and mm. it's definitely in the hip, and then for the next few hours the patient's still got their pain, it's not the hip. Mm. It's as simple as that. Yes. If the pain goes away, if they get up off the table and they do all the things that normally cause their pain and the pain's not there, it's the hip. Mm. So you can use injections to diagnose pain. That's the first thing. The second thing is most episodes of pain, acute 
on chronic pain, what we call. So in other words, people will have back pain for years and they put mm. up with it and they live with it and they do their exercises and, and suddenly they'll get a severe episode of pain mm. which might be quite localised in one area. And most likely something amongst their arthritic back has become inflamed. Yes. So you can take anti-inflammatories for that, but when you take anti-inflammatories, they go into your system, get broken down by the liver, a tiny little bit gets to where you want. Or you can have put a big dose of anti-inflammatory in that one particular Very spot. Very targeted. That's right. And turn that inflammatory process off. Just like you would if you had, for instance, people who have an acute knee swelling, okay, mm. they get something swells up in their knee. What do they do? They take the fluid off, they wash mm. it out with saline, and then they put a bit of cortisone in there. And that's the end of it. It's not mm. like you have to have that done every three months. That's the end of that particular episode. I've had it myself, okay, when I was a kid. There's acute inflammatory arthropathy of the knee. Mm. So you can get those acute inflammatory arthropathies in the back as well, uh, in any of the joints. Most people, for instance, who get a disc protrusion and do get pain from that disc protrusion, the pain is not from the protrusion pressing on anything. The pain is because your body has an inflammatory reaction to that disc protrusion. Mm. What's an inflammatory reaction? Redness, heat, swelling, pain. Mm. That's what so you get that. So now if you wait long enough and many times that will It'll settle down. It will subside on its own. Can, yeah, that's right. And you can take painkillers and that will help. But sometimes those things aren't enough. People are incapacitated. Mm. So you can then put a big dose of anti-inflammatories down there. Mm. It'll turn that inflammation off and the body will get on and heal mm. that disc protrusion. Yeah. That's what happens in the majority of cases with a disc protrusion. Wow. If a patient has... Um, progressive neurological loss, so in other words, something big is pressing against a nerve, squashing a nerve, and they're starting to lose the function of a limb, or if the pain is incapacitating and injections don't help, then it's appropriate for the person to have surgery. Yeah, so let's talk about that because does everyone get a good result with surgery or what's the story Well, with it surgery? depends on – so surgery – is excellent under certain circumstances. Yeah. If there's a very clear pathology, like a disc protrusion, for instance, that's pressing on a nerve, that's pushing on the nerve, the nerve, the, the leg is going weak, um, and um, it's very clear from the imaging that that is what the problem is, those patients do well, mm. okay, uh, if they need the surgery. As I say, many times they can get by with other things if it's not so severe. The problem with surgery is that it's tempting to recommend surgery for patients in whom it's not so clear mm. what the problem is. Surgery never fixes any problems. Surgery it can create more. <laughs> surgery only creates a different problem. Yeah. And you hope that that second problem has less pain than the first problem. Mm. So people have a fusion for instability. Yeah, okay, their that. initial problem was instability in their spine. The spine was a bit wobbly, if you like. Mm. Then they have a sur surgery. It doesn't fix the spine. It just replaces wobbliness with immobility. So it's like it diverts it to another, another That's type right. of pain. Now, lots of times replacing wobbliness with immobility might help the pain, but lots of times it might not because mm. once one segment becomes immobile, other segments then have to do more work every time you bend, mm. and then you can start getting problems at those other levels. Having said all that, yeah. surgery as a last resort is sometimes indicated. Surgery early on in the career, in your pain career, in my opinion, is rarely indicated. And most people who um, 
unfortunately get referred to surgeons at the onset of their chronic pain problem um, should really be referred to other more conservative measures well, first. Well, I was wondering whether it's actually after listening to you, it is best going to a pain specialist because they're going to diagnose it as well as really work out specifically what your needs are, what, what you're hoping to achieve and work through all the different options yeah. prior to maybe... Well, that's right. But in an ideal world, your GP would be able to do a lot of the things that a pain specialist can do. But I think they're quite time poor nowadays. They are time yeah. poor, but, you know, that's... It's indeed, tricky, We're talking about it? an ideal world. Yes, yeah, true, true. <laughs> In an ideal world, uh, and there are, look, there are lots of good GPs out there they who are. do take the time, yes. who recognise that this is a problem that's that um, needs this multimodal yeah, uh, approach that they, this patient might need a bit more time and takes a bit more time. And those patients do really well. And I think are there care plans for There pain? are care plans, right. yeah. So that, that they involve teams, exactly. don't they? A lot and of so, collaboration. Exactly. And so quite often uh, um, I will work with the GP yes. and say, well, okay, this is what needs to be done. Uh, and then the GP will organise it all because I can send patients to a psychologist or a physiotherapist, but they'll be around me here. Mm. Uh, if they're up in Joondalup or somewhere like that, they'll want to go to someone near them. If mm. the GP's a good GP, they'll know someone good mm. in that area who can who can manage these other aspects of the person's pain. And it's, as you said, it's it's a journey. So yeah. it's got, it's coordinating a team around you to help you through that journey. Exactly. To try and exactly. find the best solution for you because everyone's going to be different. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So um, is it possible then to cure pain? It's possible to cure well, <laughs> okay. Let's, let's talk about back pain. Yeah. Most back pain is related to wear and tear in the back. Mm -hmm. I can't make people younger. Mm. Okay. And also, we've been sitting at desks now. We've got exactly. so many jobs that are exactly. sitting at desks. We're sedentary, exactly. you know. It is. We don't focus on curing pain. I don't tell my patients, I'm going to cure you of this. I tell them that I'm going to help you manage this. Mm -hmm. And I don't. when my patients come and see me, I don't say to them, well, what's your pain score? And I try and reduce it by any amount. I say, how are you managing with your pain? How are you functioning? What are you doing around the house? Are you able to get out into the garden and pace yourself and do things, uh, you know, at a reasonable... Are you able to do things? Because that's what it's about. Mm -hmm. It's about managing the problem, not getting rid of it altogether. And the people who try and get rid of it altogether are the people who hawk themselves around to multiple different people mm. until someone does something that doesn't go well and then they're in worse problems than they were before. Mm. So it's all about management. That's, yeah. that's what it, our focus is. And it takes time. It takes time, yeah. patience yeah. Um, and effort. The biggest thing is from effort. everyone by the sound from of everyone, it. but especially the patient, especially the person going through the pain. <laughs> That's right. And what about advances in pain management? Where do you see the future? So, in the areas that I work in, there are some advances in terms of uh, there are advances at both ends of the scale. Mm -hmm. So, at one end of the scale, a scale before there's any type of interventional treatment at all, there have been uh, there's been a lot of work on cognitive behavioural therapy, like yes. you mentioned. I mean, you see patients who do cognitive behavioural programs and realise that actually, okay, this is not as bad as I thought. Um, I'm not definitely going to get worse. Uh, I can still do things. Uh, they learn to focus on the things they can do rather than the things they can't do. Um, they realise that it's going to require some effort from themselves and and off they go. Mm. Um, so that's not uncommon at all. Yeah. And if well, the, we had more money, there would be more of these programs around, but that's yeah. another issue altogether. Yes. At the other end of the scale where there's interventional-type treatments, 
there are there has been quite a lot of excitement in the pain specialist field, the interventional pain specialist field, about a particular type of spinal cord stimulation. I don't oh, know if you've heard of no. that. So spinal cord stimulation is like another end-stage treatment for people that have often had surgery or they're not appropriate for surgery or um, their pain is uh, difficult to manage with any other way. Mm. And it is possible to pass little wires up into the spine, around the spinal cord, all done through needles, stimulate the spinal cord at a very high frequency, somewhere between 1,000 and 10,000 cycles a second, the patient can't feel anything, but their pain is blocked out. Wow. And um, I was very sceptical when this first came out. Mm. The studies came out saying how great it was and how mm. successful, it was, successful it was and so on. And I thought, well, it's got to be a placebo effect. Mm. But the studies kept coming out. Placebo effect generally will run, out, will, mm. will run out over a period of time. So, you know, after three months the patient will say, no, it's not working anymore and nothing else will work. But these patients were getting relief. They were studying, following up for two years. They were still getting relief. Mm. So I thought I'll pick my worst patient. <laughs> He's Try always it. in and out, um, always having procedures done, um, always incapacitated, and I'll try it out on her. Yeah. And... She's had a fantastic result. And what's happened? What's so, been the biggest difference for her? For her, we've done no more procedures on her. Mm. Uh, she's not taking strong opiates anymore. And is she she's back working or she's, she's an older lady, so yeah. she's not working. But she's out functioning. She socialises. Uh, she she gets around. Is she exercising? She was, she was quite incapacitated beforehand, mm. um, spending long periods of time in hospital and so on. And so is it a, just a day procedure? Or is it it's just a day. Well, what we do is it doesn't work for everybody. So mm. we do a trial first to see whether or not it's going to work. So we just put the wires in through the skin and bring them out through the skin and connect them to a little box. Mm. And then they go away for a week or two weeks and they see whether or not that helps their mm. pain. Of course, it's hard to be objective about that but that's what we, we emphasize to the patient it's really important to try and be that because you will want it to work mm. and most patients are very good mm. uh, some patients come back and say well look you know initially i thought yeah it was great but i realized at the end of the week it's not actually doing much but mm. the majority of patients come back and it's not i tell the patients because these devices are quite expensive i say if you come back and say well i think it's a bit better that's a fail Mm. If you have to come back and say, no, that is actually makes a huge difference to my pain, mm. ideally they've reduced their painkillers at the same time. So, And then, assuming they have a good result, we remove those wires and a couple of weeks later we re-implant permanent wires and we connect them to a little battery underneath their skin, oh, right. which then goes all the time. Wow. So, yeah, that's, that's an exciting nice. advance. Yeah. I mean, that type of technology has been around for a long time. But until the high frequency cycles were tried, it was quite good for leg pain, but it was never good for back pain. Mm. But now it's actually quite good for back pain. And I've had some patients that have just done unbelievably yeah. well. It has been a life-changing treatment for that's them. That's great. So what would be one piece of advice you would give someone that's trying right now, listening to this podcast, managing chronic pain and just sort of feeling a bit helpless, what would sort of what's something that we can do that the person can do to empower themselves with their the, pain management? Okay, the first thing I would say is recognise that you have to be a part of the management program. So if you do find that you are focusing on your pain all the time, you have to try and work on ways that you can focus on other things in your life other than the pain. 
It's likely the pain might be there in some capacity for the rest of your life if it's a typical chronic pain, but it can be there as a with you in life rather than dominating you in life. Mm. So there's that psychological aspect that if you don't get on top of that, you're probably never going to get on top of your pain. The second thing is keep moving. Most people I see with acute, with back pain, for instance, will get an acute episode of back pain and rest, thinking, right, I'm going to rest until this gets better. The back does not like rest. Mm. The back wants to move. If you have to rest because it's so painful, then rest. But otherwise, keep moving. You won't damage your back doing normal normal day-to-day activities. Yes. There's no evidence for that. You won't damage your back doing swimming. You won't damage your back doing walking in the pool. You won't damage your back going for a walk. You might get pain. You won't damage your back. Mm-hmm. Obviously, keeping your weight down helps. But look, I see fat people with back pain. I see skinny people with mm. back pain. It's not fat or skinny. It's the exercise. It's fit or unfit. Yeah. So I see skinny people, for instance, athletes who have injured their back somehow in one of their pursuits. And then because they got back pain, they stopped doing all the exercise that they were doing and they just go down, down, down this spiral. It's like a spiral yeah. out of control. So that what the, the problem is that you become deconditioned. Their body is used to moving. It's used to doing things. It's used to exercise. So it's important. That's why I was saying it's important to keep moving. One of the most common things I get called for to see patients in hospital, for instance, is old people who have been put in hospital for something else, pneumonia, Mm. cellulitis on their leg, whatever else. They get put in bed and two weeks later they're complaining of back pain. Mm. It's only because they've been in bed. Mm. They've got an old spine that's rested. They've got a rusted out bike chain that's been put in the shed for a week and it's just seized up. Mm. And so it's just a matter of getting them moving again uh, in order to... And so that's why I say when you... If you have episodes of pain that you think I'll just have to rest for a week to get over it, don't. Mm. Rest when you absolutely have to, but when you don't get moving again and you will be surprised at how quickly the pain will improve. Right. So really that's a great ending in that we really moving our bodies, yep. moving the part of our body that's causing us pain yep. can actually help us. Exactly. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for talking about pain today. That's a pleasure. Okay. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Danae. Thank you to Dr. Graziotti for his time and sharing his knowledge. To learn more about Dr. Graziotti and St. John of God Subiaco, visit sjog.org.au. If you feel this podcast episode can help a friend or a family member, please share, as sharing knowledge empowers our lives and the lives of others. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to write a quick review on Apple Podcasts. To listen to more episodes of Meditalk, visit meditalk.com.au and if you have any medical conditions you would like to learn more about, please send me an email via danae at meditalk.com.au. Stay well and thank you for listening.